At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Oh, well, this week we get to continue our series we started last week called What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Our Today. And what we're doing is we're looking at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and we're looking at Jesus as he talks to his disciples about suffering that they're going to be facing in the immediate future, and then also suffering that is going to occur at the return or before the return of Christ. And what we're learning within this in these next seven weeks is how should our life change today as a result of what is going to happen tomorrow. As we look to the future, how does that shape our today? What we talked about last week is that quite simply, we're still called to the mission and vision of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations, and to live for the glory of God in any and everything within our lives. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them that in this world, there's gonna be suffering that they're going to face, but he is going to return. And what we're looking at today is a continuation of what we started last week, which is a speech by Jesus, a teaching by Jesus to his disciples called the Olivet Discourse. The reason it's called that is because it was taught on what's called the Mount of Olives. Uh, so could you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and that's where we're going to be uh, studying today, Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to pull out your cell phone, Matthew 24. We look at the English Standard Version here uh, at Woodside. Uh, if you have God's Word, go ahead and open it up. It's near the middle of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, we join Jesus after the events of Matthew 21 through 23. You see, what has occurred previously in Matthew 21 through 23 is Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey being proclaimed as he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know this is Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus rides in in Matthew 21. The next thing that we see is Jesus goes and he enters into the temple and he goes in and he flips over the tables of the money changers. He makes a whip and he drives these people out of the temple saying, my father's house will not be a den of thieves. My father's house will be a house of prayer. Then in Matthew 23, we see Jesus take up offense against the Pharisees and he shows them that they they're focusing on legalism and the minute details of the law instead of God's heart within the law to be united to his people. And so Jesus has just proclaimed woes against the Pharisees, seven woes against the Pharisees, and then we come to Matthew 24. And we looked at last week, Jesus is actually leaving the temple in Matthew 24. Uh, this is part of a teaching of Jesus, a larger teaching. And so uh, if you didn't listen to last week, if you weren't here, go back on Facebook and listen uh, to that sermon or a podcast to catch up to where we're currently at, because we need to keep in mind this entire teaching when we're diving into different parts of it. What Jesus taught was that uh, 
uh, he, he's up on the temple and he is leaving the temple. Now, what we talked about last week is that uh, the temple of Jerusalem is actually on top of a mount called Temple Mount. Uh, and then across from it, across a valley called the Kidron Valley, is another mount called the Mount of Olives. And what Jesus did last week is he left the temple. Now, in leaving the temple, he was signifying some things. He was signifying that the presence of God was leaving the temple of Jerusalem and moving out from there. He was signifying that no longer did the holiest place, the place of worship, reside within the temple of Jerusalem. It resided in Jesus Christ himself. It also signified that the gospel of Christ is no longer a Jewish thing, that the people of God are not just Jews anymore, but the gospel is presented to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so that's what we see. Jesus leaves the temple. He goes through the Kidron Valley, which was about a Sabbath day's journey is what it's described. So it would take a while. Uh, they walk through the Kidron Valley and he goes back up on the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives, he told his disciples that they were going to face suffering. They were going to be dying for their faith. And that's what we saw last week. Now this week, we take up in the middle of that discourse, and what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell us more about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. As you remember, last week, Jesus said that the temple of Jerusalem would be absolutely obliterated, that not one stone would be left on another. And this was actually fulfilled when Titus uh, sieged Jerusalem and, and went in and actually completely destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled within that time. And today he's going to dive into that a little bit more and he's going to tell his people what to do in the midst of suffering. You see, today we are going to be talking about suffering. And what we're going to see is that for the people of God, we should expect suffering. As the people of God, we should expect suffering. Now, suffering is not something that we want to talk about within our society today. I think we spend much of our lives avoiding that topic and we only talk about suffering when we have to face it. We spend a lot of our lives trying to get out of suffering at any and every cost. Uh, when kids are in high school or they're in middle school or even elementary school, suffering's not even really something on their mind. When we move into our middle ages, maybe we start to experience a little bit of suffering with our bodies. And those who move into uh, the seasoned saints or those who've had years on their belt, they move into an area where there is a lot of suffering within their lives. And we see that they many times desire the return of Jesus because we hate suffering. And it's something that is very difficult difficult for us to face. Yet Jesus is telling his disciples and his people that we must expect suffering as the people of God. Yet within this, we're going to see encouragement that we can trust God is in control of that suffering and that there will be a return of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and dive into that text today, Matthew 24. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter 
or the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. The first thing we see Jesus teach his disciples is to know that suffering will come. And what he's talking about here is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem. He's talking about a short-term fulfillment of this suffering, but then as we look at it more, we're going to see that there's a long-term fulfillment in this suffering as well. So the way this passage starts out, it says, see when, so when you see the abomination of desolation. Now that's quite a phrase, isn't it? The abomination of desolation. Well, where does this phrase even come from? Well, if we turn back to the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 27 and Daniel eleven thirty one, 31, this is where we see this phrase come into play. Daniel 9, 27 reads, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree and until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Here's Daniel 11, 31 through 32. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, the images that Daniel is talking about were actually fulfilled 200 years before our text today when Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple of Jerusalem. He took over the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus, a pagan god, and he sacrificed a pig on that altar. Now, in order to understand why this was such a big deal, you have to understand that for the Jewish people, pigs were absolutely unclean and to be disdained, and God had declared pigs unclean. So a Jew never eats pork, a Jew never eats bacon, a Jew never eats any of these things because a pig is unclean. Now, praise God for the people of God that we have been freed by God to enjoy all of the foods of God's great creation. (laughs) But if you offer a pig on an altar in a Jewish temple, that is absolutely desecrating them. It's the greatest piece of disrespect that you can imagine. And then he went ahead, he turned part of the temple into a brothel, and then he enslaved the Jewish people. So when Jesus says this phrase, the abomination of desolation, what comes to the disciples' mind is a period of absolute destruction, dismay, and desecration. When they hear this phrase, they think about that this this is something that they're going to be facing that is absolutely horrific. And Jesus gives them instructions what to do when they see this. Verse 16, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or the Sabbath. Now you have to understand the normal course of action when an army would invade an area was not to flee to the mountains, it was to flee to the city. Because Jerusalem had over 40 foot walls that were two and a half feet thick and you couldn't breach them. And so people would take refuge within the city. Instead, Jesus says to flee to the mountains. 
Now in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we see why. Because the attack of Titus was on the city of Jerusalem. And many did not heed the words of the Lord. They did not flee to the mountains. But the words of Jesus are urgent for these people. He even says, don't turn back to to take your cloak. Don't go home. Don't pack a bag. If you're sitting on the rooftop, uh, then don't go down and and, and pack a bag. What they used to do in in Israel is their their rooftops were like their patios. They'd hang out there. They'd socialize in the cool of the day. And what he's saying is, if you're hanging out on your patio and you see the abomination of desolation, run. Run. Run as quickly as possible. Know the signs of the times. Know what is happening. And he says, react to it and leave and run. He says, don't turn back to take your cloak. And then he says, alas for women who are pregnant, who are nursing infants, because it's going to be very difficult for them. And then he tells them to do something. He says, pray. Pray that your flight will not be in winter. And pray that it will not be on the Sabbath. So the reason why you wouldn't want to be in winter is because during this time, the roads of Israel are absolute mud pits and they're impassable. The reason you wouldn't want it to happen on the Sabbath is because you may come to another place of refuge and, and it may be closed because cities were closed on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus says that we should be aware and that, we should, and that we should react instantly when these things are facing us. Because he says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now we understand within this, the tribulation that Jesus is talking about has an immediate fulfillment in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and the siege of the city of Jerusalem. It was an absolutely horrific event that occurred. Uh, Over 97,000 Jews died from starvation within the city. And then once the Romans breached the walls, 110,000 more Jews died. So this was an absolutely terrible, horrific time that Jesus is telling the disciples that they're going to be facing. What would happen is that Titus actually would, he sieged the city, he surrounded it, and he'd allow pilgrims to come in to worship there at the temple, and then he would not allow them to leave. And so the supplies of food would grow short and people starve to death. It was a terrible, terrible time, and it was suffering unparalleled. Yet Jesus says within this phrase, there will be a great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now we have to look at these events, what happened in Jerusalem and ask the question, is 200,000 Jews the worst thing that ever has occurred to the Jewish people? 200,000 Jews dying is absolutely horrific. Yet if we look forward into history and we look at Germany and we look at the Holocaust and we look at the horrors of this, we see horrific things happening to God's people. And so as we look at this, we see immediate fulfillment of suffering that happened at the destruction of the temple. Yet as we look forward, we also see that there's a time of suffering that's going to be coming for God's people before his return. And we need to be aware of that and prepare ourselves for that. The way we prepare ourselves for that is one, by knowing that suffering is going to come for God's people. Suffering is not something that is talked about much from the pulpit today. 
because it's a very uncomfortable thing. And also there's a teaching that's going forth in this nation called the prosperity gospel that teaches that God only wants you to be healthy and only wants you to be rich and only wants you to have everything that you want and God would never want suffering to come into your life. And if that's coming into your life, then it's of the devil. But the reality is, as we look throughout the scriptures, we continually see that God shapes us through suffering and that God is in control of our suffering. And so because we live in a fallen and broken world, we have to know that suffering is going to happen, especially to the people of God. And then we are called to react to it. Romans 5.3 tells us how. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says to rejoice in our sufferings. That does not make any sense at all. If you don't have a reason, it makes no sense to rejoice in your sufferings. He gives the reason. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and our hope will not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, the Holy Spirit has been given to you by God. He poured out his love in your heart. In order for you to follow Christ, you have to be brought from death to life. You have to be born again, and you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. So followers of Christ must be aware that suffering will happen in our lives, and we can face it. But we have to remember that the history of the church, the church is a church of martyrs. The church is a church of those who witness and stand firm for their faith and they die for it. And continually as persecution faces the church and suffering faces the church, the church grows. If we look at what happened in China, persecution faces the church in China and the church explodes. Because when suffering comes in, the only true hope is Christ. So we have to remember that when suffering faces the church, the church will not be defeated. Here's how we know. Jesus Christ said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's church will prevail no matter what we face. So we must persevere. We must remain steadfast, immovable, knowing that suffering is going to come. It is not just knowing that suffering is going to come. Here's the other part. We can trust in the sovereignty of God. We can trust in the control of God in our sufferings. Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
Now, as we look at the siege of Jerusalem, there were certain things that occurred that actually shortened that siege and that attack and saved many of God's elect people. Yet, as we look to this time of suffering unlike any other, God also says that he will end it for the sake of God's chosen people. The tribulation will be ended for the sake of the elect, God's chosen people. This is a statement of God's grace and God's mercy. Suffering is going to happen, but God is in control of it. God is the one who can end it. Now you may be thinking right now, how can God be in control of my suffering? Well, the question I would ask you is if God isn't in control of your suffering, who is? We have a few different options. The first is the devil. Now, if the devil is in control of your suffering, then the devil is operating outside of the control of God. And we have a huge issue there, and it would also be unbiblical. Because we see in the book of Job that the devil has to go to God in order to even ask if he can do anything to Job. We have another option. It would be chance. Is our suffering determined by chance? If our suffering is determined by chance, then we truly should be sorrowful. Because chance is not predictable. Chance may never end. And chance has no purpose for our suffering whatsoever. Yet the Bible continually says that all things work out according to the counsel of God's will. That God truly is in control of all things, including our suffering. And that is something that we can find solace in, that we can find encouragement in. Because we know that our suffering is not happening for no reason. It is happening for a purpose. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's a continuing process. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being changed and renewed and made more like Christ day by day. Listen to this phrase the Apostle Paul says, for this light and momentary affliction. Now you have to think about who wrote this. This is the Apostle Paul. Let me give you a resume of his suffering. Paul was beaten 39 39, uh, lashes minus one five different times. If you were lashed 40 times, you would die. He was beaten nearly to death five times. He was a day and a night floating in the sea. He was stoned nearly to death. He was persecuted constantly. He was betrayed constantly. He had continual 
persecution and suffering in his life. He spent a lot of his life in different prisons where he wrote many of his different letters to the churches. The Apostle Paul suffered almost his entire life. And listen to what he calls it. Light and momentary affliction. Now there's some people, they come to you and they tell you what they're going through and you can say, you know, I can really identify with you, brother or sister. If the Apostle Paul came and told you all the suffering he faced in his life, you'd be like, there is absolutely no way I can identify with that whatsoever. Yet he calls it light and momentary. Why? Because it's preferring for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us has nothing in this world that it can be compared to. The weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. Well, how do we do that? We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. This is completely different than the idea in our culture that you have to taste, feel, and smell it for it to be real. No, the things that are seen are transient. They're going to pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So what he says is change your perspective. Don't look at this world and think that it is all there is in your suffering. Look and realize that there is going to be something, a weight of eternal glory that's going to be revealed for you because of the light and momentary affliction that you are facing in this time. God is preparing for you a weight of eternal glory. So friends, do not lose heart. That's what Paul says. Now it's easy to lose heart in our sufferings. And if we did not know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If we did not know that he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If we did not know that he says in this world, you will face trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If we did not know that God is the one who is in control of our suffering, then we could not face our suffering. But since we do, we can, we can know that there's purpose behind our suffering. Peter says this to the persecuted churches in Asia Minor. These are people who were doing everything right. They were suffering for doing everything right. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what do we do when we face sufferings? Peter tells us, 
First, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God for the Jews was seen as the sovereign control of God over all things. We humble ourselves under that, saying, God, you are in control, I am not. How do we do that? By casting all our anxieties upon him. We humble ourselves under God's mighty hand in the midst of suffering by throwing our anxieties and fears on God. Well, how can we do that? Because he cares for you. Knowing that he cares for you. He loves you more than you can even imagine, child of God. That is why we can cast our anxieties upon him knowing that he cares for us. There's also a warning. Satan will attack you in your suffering. He says, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The lion, when they go out to look for their prey, they look for the injured, weak one who is alone. Come on now. Who is alone. What do we need more than anything in the midst of our suffering? We need the body of Christ. We do not detach ourselves in the midst of suffering. We dive in deeper. We seek God's face and we seek God's people. Do not allow the roaring lion to devour you because you are disconnected from the body of Christ. We see this encouragement. He says, because you're not the only one who's suffering. There's suffering occurring throughout this world by your brothers and sisters, the same type of suffering. And as we talked about last week, there is suffering happening all over this world right now. People standing firm on the gospel of Jesus and they are persecuted for loving Christ and preaching the one and only truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's only one way, one truth, one life, and it is only by Jesus that we can come to the Father. So we can be encouraged that we are not alone in this and the body needs to come around and continue to support one another. And there's a promise that follows. He promises that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, our God is called the God of unmerited favor. That is his title. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore strengthen, establish, and confirm you. One of the biggest things is trusting in the sovereign control of God. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That's a weird thing to put there. Why is it there? Because when we come before God with our anxieties and our fears, we say, God, I am not in control. You are, so I submit to you, and I will give you thanks no matter what your answer is. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. Let your requests be made known to God. But then trust in him and give thanks in whatever his answer is. And then there's a promise. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You need to know that you can trust God in your suffering because he is in control. Finally, we will not suffer forever. We will not suffer forever. If you are of the people of God, you will not suffer forever. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you will suffer forever. 
in a place of eternal torment called hell. Yet if you turn away from your sin today, you turn to Jesus Christ, you surrender your life, you too have hope for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Today, confess your sins before God. Give your life to him. Say, I'm not in control of my life anymore. You are. I give it to you. Because for the Christian, we know that Christ is going to return. And that return is unmistakable. That's the third thing we see. We realize that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise before, and great signs and wonders they will perform, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What we see here is a warning by Jesus to realize that in the end times, there is going to be false gospels, false prophets, and false people claiming that they are Christ or they have a new way that is not in Christ. It's warned of all throughout scripture. The reason why is because continually there is going to be false teachings and false gospels and false teachers that will come before you. And Jesus says, be aware and don't follow after them. For their time, there were those that said that Christ would return in the, in the desert or in the wilderness. He says, no, that's not, that's not true. If someone tells you that, I'm, I'm not returning that way. He says, maybe you return in the inner room in a secret way. He says, no. Just like lightning flashes across the sky, that's what my return's gonna be like. Have you ever been in pitch black before and then that lightning bolt just spreads across the whole sky? Do you notice it? Yes. That's what the return of Christ is gonna be like. Nobody's gonna question, did Jesus return? It's going to be unmistakable. So we must prepare ourselves. We talked about this a little bit last week. We must know his word. We must know the truth. And we must know that there are false teachers and false gospels that want to lead us astray. I talked to you about one of them, the prosperity gospel, that God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy and only wants you to get all the nice things that you want. And that's not the truth. We look throughout scripture. We see continually that Jesus allows his people to suffer for his glory to make us more like him. Jesus himself suffered. He was the suffering servant. We have to be aware of any gospel that adds anything else to it. It is not the gospel plus something else. It's not the gospel plus social deeds. It's not the gospel plus works that you do. It's not the gospel plus uh, God giving you all the favor in the world. The gospel is something we submit to. We submit to the gospel. There is only one gospel. And if anyone comes to you and starts to say something to you like, hey, I know something that no one else in all of history has ever seen, you better be aware. If somebody comes to you teaching anything that is contrary to this word, you better be aware. Because the enemy wants to lead us astray. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we have to resist him standing firm in our faith. 
How are we ever going to know if it is uh, the teachings that we are hearing are against the scripture if we don't know the scripture? We need to know this stuff. That does not mean one minute a day when you get up in the morning and not throughout the rest of your day. It's good that you're doing something, but we have to know the word. We have to make this our life. This is our guiding post. This is our lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path in the dark world. We must know it. We must not be deceived by it. Timothy tells us that in the end times, people are gonna gather around themselves teachers who tickle their ears. You know what it means to have your ears tickled? It means they're gonna tell you whatever you wanna hear. Man, it's a lot easier to get a following by telling people what they wanna hear than it is telling them what they don't wanna hear. It's a lot easier to conform to a society than to truly tell people this is wrong. The gospel's offensive because it's truth. Now may we be loving in our presentation of it, but may we never back away from the truth of it. You see, love is not acceptance. Love rejoices with the truth. We have to be those who stand firm on the word and know the word. We have to be the church. We are the kingdom outpost until the kingdom comes. That's who we are. We are the witnesses. We are those who who carry the very banner of Jesus Christ. So do not just listen to anyone Check the word if what they're saying is true. Don't just go after the next fad or listen to somebody because they have cool clothes and memorable phrases. Look for those people that teach this and fill yourself with them so much so that it bubbles forth from you. Because when we face hardship, what is truly within us and who we truly are is what comes out. Are we rooted? Do we know him? Do we know his word? Because there's going to be tribulation and suffering that's going to come. There will be immediate and in the future. Yet, Christ is coming. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. And in that moment, we will be revealed the weight of eternal glory that is beyond comparison. And for those who endure to the end will be saved. And those who endure to the end will stand firm. And God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my glory. And don't we all want that? So may we pray and may we ask the Lord to strengthen us in our sufferings and our sorrows and may he prepare us through his word and may we live our lives preaching his gospel and living for his glory. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.